Welcome to the Immigration Nerds. My name is Luke Bianco, and I serve as the lead researcher for the podcast. While the circumstances are understandably grim, uh, I'm very glad to be able to introduce our guest for today's episode, Aaron Carnell. Aaron is a senior attorney here at EIG, and prior to joining, he spent more than 11 years in the State Department as a consular officer, ultimately rising to the title of consular chief. Moreover, he has more than 20 years serving in the US government with experience in the State Department, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, and U.S. Aid. With all that in mind, Aaron is the ideal person for us to have a conversation today, analyzing the role of the U.S. State Department in the ongoing invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces and the aftermath of said invasion. So welcome, Aaron. Thanks, Luke. It's good to be here. So before we begin, just a quick preface for our listeners. Any recorded conversation about the conflict in Ukraine will likely be in part outdated by the time you listen to it. The situation is changing rapidly and constantly. And while we'll do our best to provide information that is evergreen as as best as possible, this episode should be considered an analysis of where we are, where the world is on March 9th, 2022, around 3 p.m. on the East Coast. So with that in mind, as mentioned, today we'll be discussing the role of the U.S. State Department as it relates to current events. The war in Ukraine is impacted by numerous spheres of influence, we can call them. There's, of course, the military sphere, where the battle is being literally waged on the ground between forces from Ukraine and Russia. There's the economic sphere, where much of the global community has rallied behind Ukraine and attempted to isolate Russia financially. And there's the diplomatic sphere, which may serve as both the most effective means of limiting further bloodshed from the war, bringing about its conclusion, and an integral player in the process of rebuilding socially for those directly impacted. This will be our focus today. So, Aaron, can you help us understand the state of the refugee crisis from Ukraine as it is today, and the role of the U.S. State Department in processing refugee claims and ultimately resettling some of these individuals? Sure. So as we're speaking, I think the number is 2 million right now, uh, Ukrainian refugees in Poland, Hungary, Moldova, and other bordering countries. So what is the State Department's role? Unfortunately, in terms of refugees, the, the, the department's role is often misunderstood. Obviously, in terms of setting our overall foreign policy and our approach to the crisis, the department is the lead agency. But in terms of actually identifying individual refugees overseas and resettling them in the United States, the Department, uh, the Department of State does not take the lead role. Um, that role is for US RAP. So that's the United States Refugee Admissions Program, which is led and run by the Department of Homeland Security, um, specifically the US Citizenship and Immigration Services. Now, the department does play a supporting role in terms of refugees. There's a bureau in in the department called um, Population, Refugees, and Migration. And that bureau provides financial support to non-governmental organizations and the UN agencies uh, that are helping refugees on the ground. But individual refugees are not processed through that bureau. Again, that's that's the role of... um, the U.S. RAP, the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program in DHS. Understood. So it, it definitely seems like 
maybe the the average listener wouldn't necessarily have a, a great understanding of the role of the State Department, and that's part of right. the reason why we we have you here today. So, if you're able to maybe elaborate on this uh, U.S. RAP uh, organization, which which many people may not have have heard of before, uh, and what is the role in determining whether or not an individual actually qualifies by law as a refugee, and could you talk a little bit more about whether or not this is done on kind of a blanket basis or more of a case-by-case circumstance? Sure. Those are, those are great questions. So U.S. RAP identifies refugees either through a referral uh, from an international organization like uh, UN High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, or a non-governmental organization like um, International Rescue Committee or Catholic Relief Services. Sometimes it'll accept a referral from, of, a, of an individual refugee from the State Department itself. So typically what happens is the, the refugee first registers himself as a refugee with the UNHCR field office in the country. And then the field office can refer that individual to a US RAP refugee officer. That is an officer who works for the Department of Homeland Security and is in this program. Then the role of the refugee officer, the DHS refugee officer, is to identify whether or not the person meets the legal definition of a refugee. And that tracks with uh, the 1951 US or the 1951 Refugee Convention, right, which says that a person is a refugee who has a well founded fear of persecution should he be returned to his home country on the basis of his race, religion, nationality, uh, political belief, or membership in a, in a, in a social group. So and that's an important distinction. Sorry to cut it in, but that's an important yeah. distinction because I think that the term refugee or asylum seeker even is frequently used colloquially to mean anyone who is exactly. And that isn't necessarily how everyone is treated based on the specific wording of the law. That's right. The, the fact is there is a precise legal definition and you have to you have to meet that that definition. So it's not enough to be driven from your home by by war. Um, as sympathetic as as it is, you still have to be to be um, identified legally as a refugee and referred um, for resettlement in the United States by the refugee program. Uh, you have to meet this legal definition. So the first step is actually UNHCR, the field office or an NGO saying, hey, this, this person looks like he uh, meets the like legal definition of a refugee, US RAP, Department of Homeland Security, will you please take a look at this? And then so the refugee or prospective refugee comes with a referral from the NGO or, the, uh, or, or UNHCR. Now there's one thing that uh, a lot of people aren't aware of that it's actually, it's a really important policy move. We, we hope it happens. So the president has the power to designate groups of individuals as being blanket eligible um, for consideration by U.S. RAP um, without their having received a formal referral from, uh, from the U.N. or from, from another organization. So we hope that the Biden administration will, will announce, uh, it's called priority referrals. And we hope they'll announce these priority referrals for Ukrainians uh, fleeing uh, Ukraine. It's called a P2, P2 referral. So watch that space, uh, look for that. What it means is it makes it slightly easier. 
it means you don't have to have a, a formal referral piece of paper from, from a UN office to be considered for the, um, for the US RAP program and to be considered for being resettled uh, in the US. Now, people have asked me, and it's an interesting question because it like comes out, it feels like it comes out of a, a spy novel or something. Like, can you approach a, a US embassy um, as a prospective refugee and say, basically, please protect me, please declare me a refugee, uh, please resettle me in the US. Well, the technical answer is yes, but it's rare. So that's called a priority one referral. That's a P1 referral. So there must be a particular US government interest in that person. For example, somebody who's personally known um, by the embassy, either through his contacts or what he does, he's generally known in the country. Um, for example, a well-known opposition party member or well-known journalist. It is unfortunately not something that an ordinary person fleeing a humanitarian disaster can do. That is, approach a US embassy and request um, consideration as, as a refugee. It just, it just doesn't work like that. You have to go to the UN office. And it, in fact, if you did that and asked to speak to a consular officer or a political officer, and you were sort of an ordinary person, they would tell you, you need to go to the UN um, and get yourself identified as a refugee and then uh, referred to the uh, US RAP. Absolutely. And, and as you mentioned, I, I think that we all hope that, you know, that, that blanket P2 decision is made by the president. For because sure. as you mentioned, you, you know, individuals who are, are fleeing war may lack the necessary documentation to, to seek out refugee status. You know, they have many things to worry about, including just food and water and protecting their families. Actually being able to, to have that recommendation made by the UN may be harder in practice than it seems on, on paper. And as you describe, the average person can't necessarily go to an embassy or, or consular officer and just plead their own case as, as a P1 either. Exactly. So are there, you know, when we're considering this, this process, which does seem unfortunately fairly uh, bureaucratic, which I, I guess is, is to be understood, it is bureaucracy, it is, uh, you know, government officials, of course, um, but are there alternative humanitarian reliefs that may be employed in this case beyond that official stamp or official recommendation for refugee status to right. US RAP? There, there are a few options. Um, they're, they're quite limited, uh, unfortunately, but, but they are there. There's a thing called humanitarian parole. Uh, humanitarian parole is authorization to enter the United States without a visa. Um, it's called parole because legally it's not an admission to the United States. It's merely permission to remain here physically for a temporary period. Um, so a person may apply for humanitarian parole um, in, in this situation, but the application has to be filed with, I mean, if, if the person is overseas, the application has to be filed with US Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS, uh, domestically. Um, so if the parole is approved by USCIS, then USCIS would direct the relevant embassy or consulate to produce what's called a boarding foil. It, it, it's, uh, it's just essentially permission to get on a plane. It looks like a visa. It's not a visa, but 
but uh, it is uh, permission to get on a plane and enter enter the U.S. But unfortunately, you can't. This is another thing you can't do directly with an embassy. You can't um, ask an embassy for a humanitarian parole. You have to you have to ask USCIS through this uh, through this application. And I um, imagine that you know there are probably processing times associated with that. Exactly. Sending the documentation and that's and right. Definitely, yeah, not necessarily a, a catch-all option for those who who might not otherwise be able to seek refugee status. That's right. Now there are a couple more options if you're already here in the U.S. So, the administration uh, last week, um, thankfully, announced um, temporary protected status for Ukrainians who are already here. And so, what is TPS? TPS is Basically, the government's promise not to deport an individual um, because of uh, conditions in his home country and to also give work authorization to that individual if he doesn't already already have it. Um, so that um, is a lifesaver for for many people who found themselves here, uh, you know, legally and um and they are afraid to they're afraid to return the temporary protected status is the government's promise not to send that person home um which is which is a a, a really a life-saving thing so uh we're very pleased that the administration announced that another thing that can be done by a person already here is to apply for asylum within the u.s um and so that but as you said that is you know these are applications there are wait times um and you know the outcome is uncertain but that is um if you do if you are granted asylum you are given uh work authorization and the opportunity to stay um to stay permanently eventually you can apply for um, a green card and and eventually you can apply for citizenship so it's a it's a wonderful benefit, but again, you have to meet the legal definition of a of a refugee in that application. Yeah, thank you for that for that breakdown. And just with regards to TPS, for those who who may not have, have heard of it before, this is not specific to. It's not a new invention for That's right. Ukraine. There are other examples where there are other countries, you know, El Salvador, Haiti, Honduras, who are currently designated for TPS, whether for war or environmental disaster, etc. Correct. Exactly. Okay, great. So that's definitely a very thorough breakdown of, of kind of the different humanitarian options that the State Department uh, or one of its affiliates might help facilitate for those who are, who are currently fleeing Ukraine. So we also wanted to talk to you today because of, of your experience as a consular officer as well as you know, the non-immigrant alternatives to potentially seeking uh, refugee status or seeking uh, protection in the United States or being able to flee to the United States via a non-immigrant visa, as opposed to seeking those more formal uh, refugee classifications. Are there currently non-immigrant statuses that people can seek to come to the United States if they happen to, to know someone in the United States or they happen to have an address that they could go to here uh, and they are currently fleeing Ukraine? Are the services still being offered? Yeah, so this is um, this is a really tricky area of, of the law, and I'm afraid it's disappointing. Um, it's a disappointing for for a lot of people. Um, it's just not it's just not very straightforward. So this it it is true that there is no such thing as a refugee visa. 
right? So there is the resettlement that we discussed earlier through US RAP, or you could be in the immigrant visa process. That is, um, you know, you, you, an employer, employer has petitioned for you or you've married an American citizen. Those are the immigrant pathways, but there is really no non-immigrant pathway to fleeing a, a, a crisis that is producing refugees. In other words, one cannot apply for, say, a tourist visa with the intent to use it to enter the United States and apply for asylum or stay indefinitely. So if it appears to the consular officer or any reasonable person, I mean, that's sort of the, the reasonable person standard is the standard that's used. If it appears to anybody, any reasonable person reviewing that application, that the visa applicant's intent is to simply use the visa to enter the U.S. and remain indefinitely, the officer is very likely to deny the, the visa because that's not its purpose. Its purpose is tourism or, or, or business. That's not, it's not a guarantee that the, that the visa will be denied, so it, it really depends. If, if the applicant can demonstrate ties to Ukraine, like a stable job, um, even though those ties are temporarily disrupted, um, and if the applicant can sort of demonstrate a, a credible non-immigrant purpose, like a, a temporary stay, um, it's possible that the, that the visa would be granted. It, it's really a case-by-case -case thing, but in every other kind of visa, the, the law puts up a pre presumption that the individual is actually seeking to immigrate to the United States unlawfully and will remain in the United States unlawfully if granted that visa. So the applicant's job is to overcome that legal presumption. Um, and he does that by showing that he has good ties to his, to his country and that essentially a reasonable person would not abandon um, his, his life um, in, in that country to just remain in the US you know, and, work, uh, and work without authorization. So it's a really tricky area and, and all visa applicants have to overcome that, that presumption. And it's kind of made worse by the overall situation which uh, people obviously want to flee from. So again, the bottom line is if the consular officer believes that the purpose of the tourist visa is to come to the US and apply for asylum the next day um, and stay, uh, he's not gonna grant the visa. And that's, that's the uh, that's sort of bad news uh, about this situation. And unfortunately, we, we do sort of anticipate that people may try that route anyway, given right. just the desperation on the ground and right. um, you know, attempting to flee at any way possible. Um, but as you lay out, unfortunately, the, the law doesn't necessarily allow for, for using non-immigrant non visas in that way. Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, there, there is a little bit of wiggle room in, in terms of how the department will look at, at, these, at these applications. It is possible that, uh, that the State Department might encourage consular officers to evaluate the ties, um, assuming that the person will, uh, will return to Ukraine when the situation stabilizes. That is, he will evaluate the ties according to normal times rather than extraordinary times. But we don't know um, if the department 
will issue that sort of instruction. It, the, the, the safest course is to assume that the law hasn't changed and that everybody has to, has to overcome the presumption of immigrant intent. That's just the way, the way it's set up. So, you know, any organization that's, that's dealing with a crisis, whether it be war or you know, weather, disaster, whatever it might be, we're sure that the State Department has, uh, you know, resource considerations at the moment that yeah. may be strapped, both in terms of personnel and also other resources that you might just need to run that type of office. Right. Um, can you talk about some, uh, what policies might be in place to, to scale to the current volume that we're seeing in Eastern Europe and, and beyond, as well as any policies in place to ensure the safety of, of State Department and consular personnel during times of war and crisis as, sure. as we're seeing now? Um, so if a consulate or embassy is sort of being overwhelmed by, by you know, visa applications or the, the duty to protect American citizens, um, to possibly assist with the evacuation of American citizens, the, the Bureau of Consular Affairs is not gonna just leave them hanging out there. Um, the, that Bureau has uh, a number of resources at, at its disposal to, um, to provide a surge uh, capacity. So there's a quick response team of consular officers that can be deployed to any consulate where there's a need. Um, the department can offer temporary duty support um, in the form of officers who are Washington-based or based in another consulate to go over to the consulate in need. Um, and there's even a, a core of retired consular, office, consular officers who, who can come and, and help out if, if necessary. Um, but it's a, a lot of people don't realize that the, the, um, the main role of, the, of, of any consulate is actually to protect American citizens. There's an old saying that um, in a crisis, every foreign service officer is a consular officer. And job number one for any consular officer, I mean, this is in training from day one, is to protect American citizens. That is why we are there. So every other job in a crisis is, is viewed as almost superfluous. Like every, it's all hands on deck. Every officer, whether you're the ambassador or the political officer or the economic officer has to help out with the consular work if Americans are in distress, need to be evacuated, need to be assisted. So that's always priority number one. For a, for a consulate, that's kind of the raison d'etre of a, of a consulate. And then they can move to other, other priorities um, like issuing, issuing visas, especially to uh, immigrants um, and then and issuing non-immigrant visas. Um, so I, I really commend um, the officers in Poland right now, uh, despite the crisis, um, you can still get a non-immigrant visa appointment in, in Poland. Um, they have obviously um, um, gathered the resources they need um, and are continuing to process, to process appointments and also serve American citizens at the same time. So uh, we have no reason to believe that they're going to you know, close down and, and just say, okay, we're not accepting any, any visa applicants. Uh, obviously, um, wait times may be, may be impacted. In terms of uh, helping U.S. personnel, 
in an 11 year career, I always felt safe, honestly, because every consulate is required to have an emergency action plan. In a, in a crisis, the, the messaging to American citizens is, is really critical. And it has to proceed in lockstep with the personnel decisions about US staff um, that, that are made at a consulate. So you don't wanna have a situation where the travel advisories for US citizens are not saying the same thing as the actions that are taken by the embassy in terms of their own personnel. So in other words, if you're authorizing the departure of you know, non-essential non personnel from, from an embassy, you not only need to announce that publicly, but you have to make sure that your traveler advisories for American citizens that are in the country, resident in the country or visiting the country are consistent with that message. So you can't have a travel advisory that says, hey, it's okay to come here at the same time as you are evacuating your own staff. Um, so this is where the public affairs people have to work very closely with the, with the security people, the security officers in making sure that the messaging for US citizens is consistent with what the embassy is doing, the decisions it's making with its own staff. So that's, um, that's just something, something to consider. And, and again, it's because job number one is to protect American citizens. And you don't wanna be in a situation where as an embassy, you look like you're protecting your own staff more carefully um, than, than you are the ordinary American citizens in the country. So your messaging has to be consistent. There can't be a double standard in, in that respect. Thank you again, Aaron. And uh, of course, I think I speak for, for everyone that you know, we hope this conflict and, and war comes to a close as, as quickly and efficiently as possible. And we are very thankful to the members of the State Department who will undoubtedly play a role in uh, processing the, the instability as a result of this. Uh, so. Thank you very much for your time and uh, hope everyone stays safe. Thank you, Luke. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.